have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to conclude our series today in the book of Galatians. I hope this is something that you have enjoyed as we came out of Easter and that season of celebrating the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of our Savior. And as we've gone into the book of Galatians and studied what it looks like to have this new identity in Christ what it is that he gave his life for, what it looks like in our own lives and what it looks like expressed throughout his church. As a matter of fact, that that last part is what we're going to be primarily focused on today. What does our new identity in Christ look like in a gospel-shaped culture of a church? What does it look like when the people of God gather together as they, whether they're in larger groups or smaller groups or discipleship groups or any gathering when we're together? What does it look like that our own new Christian character begins to be expressed in a church culture? And so as we go to God's word today, would you pray with me that God would continue to shape and mold us into the image of his son? Father, thank you for your word and how it guides us. Thank you for your word and how it frees us to live for you and how it restrains us to turn away from the things of the world. Holy Spirit, where we need to turn, give us strength to do so today. Where we need to step out in freedom, give us strength to do so today. Lord, whether we are eating or drinking, whether we are sleeping or waking, we find ourselves in desperate need of you, and you always supply for our need. May we experience that again today through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we have special Sundays like this, if you're our guest, Thank you for being here with us today. Even as you heard, next Sunday is special as well, but can we just acknowledge something that every time the people of God are gathered together, that's a special thing. That's a special thing because we are a gathering of those who God gave his life for through his son, those who have been redeemed through Jesus Christ. It's a gathering of those that don't just have a lot of things in common, and that's what Paul is appealing to at the church in Galatia, he's he's asking them to look beyond just the the surface things, what it is that gathers them together, and he reminds them that through through Christ they have been justified. He spends extensive time in the first chapters of the book of Galatians telling them about this justification, about this, this declaration legally standing before the holy throne of God. Because of Jesus Christ, they are justified. Many will summarize that and say, it's just as if I never sinned because Christ paid the penalty for me. That's what he takes a lot of time. But then he, then he doesn't just stop there where, where we're left wondering how it is that we're supposed to live. He says, you're justified. And then as if the judge getting down from the throne himself, taking off his robe, putting on the robe of Christ's righteousness on us, he says, now let's go home. We are adopted as well. So we're justified, we're adopted. We are not just adopted as another child among many, we're adopted as sons. And this isn't some patriarchal statement, this is a a statement of inheritance, of benefit, of blessing. We're adopted as sons, we're justified in this legal standing, we're adopted and brought into intimate communion with him as sons. In other words, carrying the authority of the household that we've been adopted into, the household of God, the children and the people of God walking around as his ambassadors, those who who carry the strength of the one who saved us, representing the kingdom that we now make up as a people of God. 
Then he begins to say, so what should it look like for the individual? And this is where we were last week in Galatians chapter 5. We see that there is this wonderful turning away from, turning away from the grotesque things of the world that distort God's good design, that, that draw us away from what he intends for his people. But not only that, he calls us to turn to something that's a fruitful life. We acknowledge that every one of us wants to have a fruitful life, but we don't want to wait until the day that we die in order to be aware of those things. We want to actually live in the good of that fruitful life today. Then he's going to go beyond that today, and he's going to say when the people of God, those ones who have been justified, adopted, who are now sons, those ones who are turning away from the world, turning to a fruitful life, what does it look like when they get together? Well, it's a glorious thing. And he begins where we will this morning. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So what does a gospel-shaped culture look like? Galatians chapter 5 begins to spell it out for us. Now, there are many Sundays where we seek to extract an application for our lives. This Sunday is almost exclusively application. But he's going to remind us, Paul is going to remind us, as he begins to have this familial language, where he's turning away from calling the Galatians fools for turning to different rituals and different external things that they were looking at rather than the cross of Christ. He's going to call us in this familial language brothers. Now we hear here the extension of the language that he used in calling us sons. There's something unique about this. There is an older brother, and it's Jesus Christ. It's not each one of us, but we share in the inheritance that he has purchased for us through the cross. And so when we gather together, he addresses the entire congregation as brothers. And this is what helps us to know he's moving from speaking to individuals about the individual fruit of the Spirit, and he's moving into addressing the congregation. If any of you is caught in wrongdoing... Now, perhaps in your house, this will happen at different times. There's some sort of wrongdoing that happens. Oftentimes, this has to do with desserts or the exact number of things, and all of a sudden, there's one missing. We all have these stories in our childhood where someone is caught in wrongdoing, a transgression of sorts. We have an enemy that is, seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He sets traps for us even as the people of God. And there are times that our brothers and sisters that are gathered even with us today will fall into those traps. How will we respond as a church? Well, we as a family, a family of faith, we need to be there to pry open the traps and set one another free. We need to be there to help each other see what is going on in our lives. Consider what James chapter 5, 19 through 20 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know, we, we read this same language of love covering a multitude of sins when it comes to the character of God himself. 
microphone's trying to escape my head. When we read about the character of God himself, and this is not some just overlooking, it's not blindly turning away, it's actually something that's quite redemptive. There is a degree to which this is a, a passage of church discipline, but not in the extreme level where somebody's being traipsed out on stage and, and called out as a sinner. That's not how we seek to handle anything like that. But it does say that the church should be disciplined in the truth and that there should be a discipline that follows that. It's, it's a protective discipline. It's something that, that says that's not allowed here. We're not going to let those snares into this church. It's something that says we as a church don't want to be caught by the snares of the enemy let alone if we see someone beginning to go toward sin, we want to be there to gently call them back. Now, this is not a, a command this morning. You're not walking out as newly enacted righteousness police. Well, you're walking around looking at each other's lives, and you're just saying, hmm, that doesn't seem to line up. Well, let me just call that out. No. These are sins that are destroying the people of God. These aren't just conscience issues that they're, that they're talking about. And what is it that the role is? Not to be the righteousness police, but to restore. Now, this language here that is used in the original Greek actually is not uh, the way that we often talk about restore these days. What will it look like for a fallen leader to be restored? What does it look like to be restored to right relationship with God? It's not quite the same concept. What's being talked about here as one who is out of alignment being brought into alignment. Perhaps you could think of it this way. Maybe a dislocated joint is being reset gently by the church. That's a form of church discipline. When we see in Matthew where we're, where we're called, we, what do we do? We go to our brother one-on-one. -on -one. If they don't respond to that, what do we do? We go back with others. Why are we doing this? We're appealing to them to be restored to the truth. This is something that is vital for the church. As if we are setting a dislocated joint. So maybe an example of this would be like this. If your brother or sister is addicted to something, how is it that God is calling you to help? Not just be the righteousness police there trying to stand and point the finger at them. How is it that God is calling you to not enter into that addiction, but enter into that situation to be a help? What about someone who's working an excessive amount of time and neglecting their family? Is there a way that you can come alongside and help them as we are restored to the truth that what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses the soul of this family? What does it look like to enter into that? What about a man who is involved in a, a shady relationship? Should he be confronted gently? Yes. What about a sister who has missed corporate worship for a month and maybe she should at least receive a phone call and not in this, we are keeping tabs on you, but in this, I love you, are you okay? There's a different tone to those phone calls. See, we're called to be people who care for our brothers and sisters, not who's trying to be everyone's accountability partners. We can't accomplish that. Trying to be everyone's accountability partner puts yourself in, in the place of trying to be the Holy Spirit for everyone. That's way above any of our pay grades. That's way above any of our roles in the church. But, uh, what, but we do have a role in this. Gently restore to the truth. How is it we might be a means to the Holy Spirit's end in the church? See, Jesus is the one who alone can forgive and restore but he uses the means of people in, our, in the church to put back together broken down, old, and spiritual, spiritually dilapidated lives. What is our job? What is our role in the midst of that? To point each other to Jesus. 
to point each other to Jesus. You know, when the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus, the people wanted to stone her, but Jesus was not interested in destroying this woman. He was interested in restoring her. So church, be concerned for your broken brother or sister. And like Jesus, lead them to restoration that they may go and sin no more. Oh, this, this process requires us to be so careful, so gentle, spiritual, praying, humble in the midst of this, careful with one another's lives. But that leads us to the next point. A gospel culture humbly bears burdens. Don't let your brother or sister be crushed by the things that are going on in life. Be alert and quick to act to ease their burden. I'm aware of several of our members right now that are in the hospital. They may be watching through this live stream right now. And maybe you're wondering, what should I do with my life? Well, here's a daily mission that we can be on in the church. Be alert to the, bu the burdens of others and devote yourself to making them lighter. You know, I'm so grateful oftentimes when we are made aware pastorally of these types of needs, there are several layers of people in the church already involved, already seeking to care, already reaching out and praying for them. I think of a sister who is sitting in, in the hospital right now and she is seeking a long-term prognosis for the things that she's facing. I think of another who's facing surgery just this next Tuesday. And there are communities of people already swarming around them, helping them, seeking to ease these burdens. What a gift that is to pastorally walk into. But you know, not everything is a 911 emergency in life. Bear one another's burdens doesn't mean, hey, listen, the things that you're walking through in life, you should just take on the things of everybody else too. No, that's not at all what Paul is calling us here too. But see, burdens are a reality in this fallen world. We face those types of crises at different times, maybe related to work, maybe related to health. We are not self-sufficient people. But there is a command being given to all believers to bear one another's burdens. And that's explicitly tied to how it is that we fulfill the law of Christ. But Paul is going to distinguish here between heavy burdens and light loads. You might think that this verse contradicts verse 2 after Paul says, carry one another's burdens. And then it goes on to say, for each person will have to carry his own load. So which one is it, Paul? I'm confused now. Well, some things in life are so heavy we cannot bear them alone. We need help. Other matters in life are equivalent to what you might carry in a backpack. In other words, everything in life is not a crisis. You don't have to call in the National Guard or convene a meeting. You can carry your own backpack. You know, there's a wonderful place to, to help determine which one of these things are that's happening in life. And it kind of, it, it helps us to avoid being kind of this version of chicken little as Christians where everything is the version of the sky falling. Community groups. Being in community with one another. Gathering together in the church and seeing other brothers and sisters singing even in the midst of their own burdens. It'll help put the load of your life in perspective. I'm not encouraging you to look around and look at everybody else while they're singing. That's weird. What I am saying is, you have no idea what the family or the couple or the individual sitting next to you this morning is walking through. But I bet a conversation with them would put so much in perspective in terms of your own calling. 
It's either going to help you understand the load of life that you're walking through in a right perspective, or it's going to call you to be a person who is helping to bear the burden of the one sitting to your left or right or in front of or behind you right now. You need clarity on the mission that God has for you? Talk to your neighbors this morning. Talk to those sitting around you. I bet God and the Holy Spirit will clarify for you what he's calling you to today. Let's continue to read. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are in the household of faith. So what do we see here? A gospel culture shares generously. Now, Paul is speaking to myself this morning as a teacher, those who throughout this week as teachers in vacation Bible school, those who were setting an example for the children, those who are community group leaders or ministry team leaders here within the church. He is speaking to us of the responsibilities that we have. But he's speaking to all of us gathered here today as those who receive from the word. You know, our mission as a church is to love, grow, and share. You'll see that language in a variety of places. That call is not just an institutional statement. It's what we believe that God has called us to. But here's a question that we have to wrestle with. What is it that we're called to share? Well, we're sharing the good news that we've received. We're sharing the good news that we're justified, that we're adopted, that we're sons, that we're brothers and sisters, that we can turn from this to the fruit of the Spirit, that our lives can be transformed at its very core by who Jesus is and the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives and in our midst. In other words, we're all sinners who need grace. We're all sharers, not just me on a Sunday morning or a community group leader throughout the week. I do have the responsibility. Our elders and deacons have the responsibility to steward the truths of Scripture without wavering. To not be lovers of money. To value the things of God above the trappings of the world. And so, church, I would just make this request. Pray for me. Pray for our elders. Pray for our deacons and our leaders in various ministries throughout this church and our community groups. I know for myself, I know for others, this is not a clock-in and clock-out type of role. There's passion behind what we do. There's hours of desperate prayer, deep love for you. We're not just pasting on smiles and parroting pious words. This is a serious charge to those who share the good news. Paul goes on to give intentional instruction to those who are listening as well. What is it that he instructs them? And he says that they should learn from their teachers, even repeating and sharing with others what it is that they learn. But Paul here focuses on the responsibility to share all their good things with the one who teaches. Paul is urging ministerial support here. Please understand, this is awkward to deal with this morning. 
it's awkward for me to talk about. But I know your heart is that you don't want to miss Paul's ultimate concern because it's not money. Paul's burden was for the furtherance of the gospel. We see this because not only would some sort of material support include food or money or the the things that are appropriate for the teacher's welfare, we see that Paul himself at times worked outside the church and other times he received support from the church. We see this in Philippians and 2 Corinthians. But he thought that it was good for the church to support ministers. Church, my family, our staff and their families are well taken care of. But you are not, through your dollars, outsourcing your faith to us. You are not, through your dollars, paying us for the Christian life that you are called to live. No, as a matter of fact, you're, through your dollars, telling me to remind you that through your dollars you're not doing that. You're, you're, through, through your support materially, through your support and service in the church, through your support in the mission that we're called to in this community, you are saying, we want to be a part of this. And we're asking you to lead us through that. Church, what a humbling, what a sobering call. Care for those who teach. Not out of obligation, not out of tradition, but because you love the word of God. Because you want to see it spread to the ends of the earth. Because you want to see it spread throughout this community. Because you want to see it come to fruit in your own lives. A gospel culture shares generously. A gospel culture also pursues personal holiness. As we look at these verses, you may think that where he's talking about sowing and reaping, the one who is taught the word to share, the the one who uh, teaches to be taken care of, and maybe this is what the sowing and reaping means. Well, maybe that's connected to my dollars. If I give more, maybe my life will be more fruitful. Let me make sure that we're clear here. That is not what Paul is calling you to. That would be a gospel of prosperity. In other words, you have to do more to receive more from God. That's not truth. Truth is this. You are called to sow to the things of the Spirit. Paul once again kind of changes his metaphors here. He starts to use farming language. And here is an implicit truth in farming. You're not going to grow it if you don't sow it. It's pretty simple. Last year, Stephanie and I had the opportunity to be in Minneota, Minnesota. There were cornfields everywhere, except where nobody had planted cornfields. And it was a very small part of town. They're not going to grow it if they don't sow it. Paul's using that kind of language to help us understand something about our Christian life. It's not about the reaping as much as it is the sowing. He tells us to sow to the Spirit. Whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow tomato seeds, you're not going to get corn, no matter how much you want corn to grow. Though the seed may lie in the ground with no apparent effect for a long time, there is a time when that seed will germinate and make fruit. It's not the reaping that determines the harvest, it's the sowing. And so, church, let me ask you this morning, what are you sowing to for growth in the future? Maybe it's at the end of today. Maybe it's in this next month or this next year. Maybe it's in a decade in your family. What are you sowing to today that there may be a harvest to reap in the future? 
You see, in the midst of this, there is a stark warning and a wonderful promise. To the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit you will reap eternal life. That's what it says in verse 8. That's a wonderful promise for us. If we live by the Spirit, we will enjoy approval from our Father God. We will enjoy assurance through our brother Christ. We will experience fulfillment and joy through the Holy Spirit of the Christian life now. And we know through that assurance that it's going to continue, oh, all the more beyond death in this life. What are you sowing to today? A gospel culture pursues personal holiness. Are you sowing to the sins that were listed in Galatians chapter 5? Are you sowing to the fruit of the Spirit that we're called to at the end of that chapter? A gospel culture also practices practical goodness. You know, I love the local mission that Shane leads us through here in the church. Practical goodness. Keeping an awareness of our neighbor. But in the midst of this, Paul is going to just begin to kind of list things off. And he's not rattling them off as if he's just trying to get everything out of his mind for the church in Galatia. He's actually shaping something about what we're called to as a church. He's saying every Christian can become discouraged in sowing to the good. But Paul says this, keep sowing. Keep sowing. Keep loving one another. Keep resisting bickering with others. Keep rejecting false teachers. Keep bearing one another's burdens. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep doing good and watch God work. There's a harvest out there. There's a harvest in this city. We reap what we sow, even though it may take years before we see fruit, but it's worth it. So keep pursuing goodness in your life, through your life. It's what Shane was just praying for our graduates this morning. I love that prayer. They're they're not just going into profession. They're being employed in the mission field that God is laying out before them. Even if that changes. Even if it changes from the plans that they've laid out for themselves. Let's continue to read. Galatians chapter 6. Begin in verse 11. We'll go through the end of the chapter. See what large letters I'm writing to you with in my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me And I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. For from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Here Paul bookends where he started the letter. He's summarizing some of the major themes from the letter, and he's contrasting this cross-centered ministry with a self-exalting ministry of the false teachers. 
The false teachers, they, they exalt in, in their own works, their own abilities. He uses the illustration of circumcision here. Those things that don't, don't require them to be humbled by the cross. And he's addressing the controversy that kind of began in Galatia, a controversy related to circumcision. But this controversial truth has something far greater as the weight behind it. Was the cross enough? Did Jesus indeed pay it all? And he's telling the church there, in this gospel culture that he is charging, he is saying, be humble and not prideful, boast in the cross and not yourself, treasure Christ and not the world, value spiritual transformation and not just external ritual, walk in truth, not error, seek to please Christ and not man. So are you wondering what it looks like for you to live in the good of this new identity this week? Paul lays it out for us in these closing verses. He lays it out for us very practically. He says that be humble and not prideful because these false teachers, they were motivated by their own self-interests. They were looking out for themselves and self-preservation, but that is not the call of the cross. It's not one of self-preservation. It's a call of self-sacrifice. We saw so many laying down their own lives this last week, serving in VBS. What is that? That is, that is a humility. That is a mark of the one who gave his life for them. Thank God for servants like that. He's saying to boast in the cross and not yourself, to, to glory in, to make much of the cross, to be consumed with the cross, or to be mastered by it. May it be the thing that guides your life. May it be the thing that keeps your soul from wandering from center. May it be the thing that humbles you. The psalmist says in Psalm 44, we boast in God all day long and we will praise your name forever. May it never be that we would ever make much of anything, or glory in anything, or be mastered by anything but the cross. It's what brings us back to center. It's what humbles us before a loving God. Treasure Christ and not the world. You know, there's a present power in our lives that the cross has to free us from the world's bondage. In other words, when we're bearing one another's burdens, when we are freeing one another from the entanglement, from the entrapment of sin, there is a power that we have to bring that is not in our own strength. It's the power of the cross. It frees us from the world's bondage. The corruption the meaninglessness of this age, the hopelessness that we see everywhere around us. The cross frees us from that because we don't have a hope in today. We have a hope in a day to come. You know, it almost seems to me that warped values and despair have become something that the world seeks to attain. It's almost as if they race each other to despair more. I don't want to live that life. I want to find hope in something. Despair doesn't make me want to get out of bed, let alone live for anybody other than myself. And yet it seems to be something that is valued today in the world. But there is a hope that we have through the cross so we should treasure Christ and not the world. Paul actually uses language that the believer and the world, they're dead to one another. They've parted ways. 
There is no coming back. So when we have been crucified with Christ, we belong to Him alone. Value spiritual transformation and not external ritual. You know, there, there can be a time in sharing Christ with others that it almost seems as if you're just trying to pad numbers for religion. So often, that, that's a hurdle that we have, to, we have to overcome in the world today. So many have never even darkened the door of the church. All they know of the church is what makes headlines in the news. How devastating and tragic that is. Those are hurdles that we have as believers to overcome, even just in conversation with those who don't believe what we do, who don't have the hope shared that we do. You may think, every time you see a new headline, you may think, God, give me the grace to overcome this just in conversation with coworkers. God, give me the grace to overcome this on my campus as I'm interacting with other students. How is it that I can portray the hope of the gospel, not the hope in man? That these headlines so tragically display what the ultimate end of that is. It's right that there is a calling out from the world of the church. But it's wrong for us to cower as a church as if we have no hope. It's right for us to see that we are not calling people to external rituals. We're not calling people to a dead service. We're not calling people into a gathering of people that is like, as Shane said earlier, a civic organization or some kind of club. That we are calling people to a relationship with the one who laid his life down for them. We're calling people to a right relationship with the one who made them for his own glory. We're calling people to a source of power that they will never find in education or accumulation in this world. We're calling people into a relationship, not religious ritual. And yet we have so much to overcome in that. And Christ, working through us, will empower us to live differently as a way to be a witness to the world around us. This relationship that we're called to, it's not about religious acts or codes of ethics. It's about being united with Christ. And then he's going to work in us as his followers. He's going to empower us to live for his glory. Lastly, walk in truth and not error. You know, Paul is passionate about people walking in, not just knowing about, not just affirming intellectually. He's passionate about people walking in the truth of the gospel. He doesn't want us just to make a mental ascent. He wants it to be something that we experience in our very homes. He doesn't want it just to be something that we continue to consume knowledge of. He wants it to be something that we are drawn to because of the relationship that we have with our Savior. We're not looking for a dead relationship. We're going to walk in the truth of the gospel and not error. Why? Because we want to please Christ and not man. In, in working with the parents this last week, what a privilege to spend each night this last week with a group of parents who, for some reason, kept coming back. I was shocked. What a privilege to be with them. But there, were, there came a point where we were talking about the truth of the gospel. And I said, you know, there comes a point as parents that we have to fear God more than we fear our children. And I thought that was just such a, a poignant point. I thought, wow, that's, that's so good. And I was telling my mom about it. She said, do you remember me saying that to you growing up? I said, no. But like ragu, it's in there. 
It's in there. It, it, it's, it, it was, she said, I'm going to fear God more than you, and so we're not going to act that way in this house. Here I thought it was brilliant, and it was because it was mom's. But mom got it from Paul. Please, Christ, not man. Husbands and wives, please, Christ, not your spouse. Parents, please, Christ, not your children. Brothers and sisters, please, Christ, not your siblings. Families, please, Christ, not your family traditions. Church, please, Christ, not the world. It becomes very practical, doesn't it? Paul's closing words are revealing something in calling us up to live for the one who gave his life for us. It, it reveals Paul's own love for his Savior. He says, I bear the marks of a believer. His body bore literal scars for his obedience to Christ. I'm grateful we live in a nation where that's not the case today. But I fear that too many of us don't bear any scars whether it be relationally, whether it be marks where we've had to take a stand for the truth. I'm concerned that we don't actually live in the good of Paul's example, that we can bear the scars of the world around us because we are reflecting Christ's call to each of us today. We read this in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, where Jesus, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the very hope that I have. And he goes on to say that that not being ashamed of the gospel connects to Jesus' words right here, that he will not be ashamed of us in a day when he says, Father, these are mine. Don't wait until that day to not be ashamed for the gospel. Don't wait until that day, that day to proclaim boldly the good news of the gospel. Paul, in closing his letter as the worship team joins me, which is all about the subject, the main thrust of his message today, he closes it reminding us of the grace of God. And this is what... It makes up the sum and the substance of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. The marks of Jesus on your body and the grace of Jesus in your spirit. As we're greeted as brothers, as he closes out his greeting to us as brothers, we're reminded that we don't walk about this new identity alone. We walk with others. We are surrounded by fellow followers 
The cross not only changes our relationship with God, but with others as well, those who are seated around you. This is how grace is actually multiplied to us as people by those who are gathered around us, even this morning. We begin by grace, by being justified by faith in what Christ has done. We understand our adoption as sons by grace, not by anything that we do. This good news of grace is what the Galatians need to know, to love in our spirit. This is not some set of abstract truths. This is a way of life for the people of God. It's deeply fulfilling. It's a secure life now and an assurance of an eternal life to come. So let me ask you this morning, have you received this new life? Have you received of this grace? Grace very simply means this, an unmerited favor from God. It's, we talked about this in the parenting class this week, it's God's righteousness at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. His righteousness at Christ's expense. Why why would there have to be an expense? Well, because there is a penalty for sin. There is a, a judgment for sin. It satisfies the wrath of a holy God. I know that's not a popular subject today, but it's the truth that we have been saved through Christ from the wrath of God. We are recipients of grace, and it makes grace all the more beautiful when we realize that wrath is a reality. And if we've not received it, that wrath is your eternity. May I appeal to you today to receive of the grace that is extended to you through Christ. Don't close your ears. Don't harden your hearts to this. Hear the good news of the gospel for you. And if you've heard this good news before, respond in this way. Live for the good of others. Restore others. Share generously. Pursue personal holiness. And practice goodness toward those around you. Why do we do this? Because we fear God more than we fear others. We're going to stand before him one day saying, I took up my cross daily and I lived for you that I might gain more of you. Church, can we stand together? sing this morning.